Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. As of this recording, you have just less than five days to get your game in for the Board Game Workshop Design Contest. The deadline is the end of day on Sunday, April 21st. So head on over to theboardgameworkshop.com and you can find out all the details. We are just past 175 judges and looking for more. So if you're interested in judging, you can head over to the website and find all the details on signing up to be a judge. We're also still looking for more contributors to the contributed episodes, which will be airing in two weeks. So if you are interested in putting together a segment, you can head over to the website and find the details on there up in the contributor segment. This is the fourth and final installment in the Designing Elegant Game series. This time we talk about time. And it was a really good discussion. So if you haven't listened to any of the other episodes in this series yet, head back to episode 56 to listen to us talk about graphic design. Episode 58, we talk about theme and illustration. And episode 60, we talk about physical design. That's all the announcements. On to the show. Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. I am here with Sen Fung Lim, Kathleen Mercury, and Jeff Inkelstein of the Ludology Podcast. Welcome to the show. How you doing? Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. This is great. So, Jeff, you're on the graphic design episode. Kathleen and Sen, we're just on the physical design episode. And now we're here to talk about time. So we can skip by the intros, because everyone has listened to every episode of this series, I'm sure, because it's riveting. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it is. So time. I love to think about time. Time travel is one of my most liked topics in science fiction. I think time as a concept is very interesting. Time in philosophy is very interesting. When I was talking about elegant game design, I instantly came to time because it affects so many different things about how a game plays, how you experience a game, um, and it can really add or detract from the elegance or be a sign that something else is inelegant. So would anybody like to give us a definition of time? I think Je- I think Jeff would be the best at that. I'm going <laughs> to... Oh, because I majored in physics, so that's it? Sure. Physicists have no idea what time... It's T. It's the little T that you see in the equations. <laughs> it, it really is the little T in the equation. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, time is really interesting in a game sense, um, and I'm, I know we're going to talk about a lot of different aspects of it, but, you know, I have played 15-minute games that seem like they're taking forever and eight-hour games that just fly by. So, um, you know, time is certainly, in the, in this sense, uh, in an elegant game design sense, I think can be very relative and it's you know it's it's always important to watch your players and and see how they're interacting with the game and and how people are engaged because that's going to really change their perception of the flow of time during the course of the game excellent definition uh so let's start with the i'd say the biggest thing that you see about time that's a problem and that's downtime everyone complains about downtime even if they're not actually complaining about downtime they're complaining about something else but they call it downtime (laughs) What are some problems that you see with downtime? Sen, you want to start? Sure. I'm actually going to challenge you and say that not all downtime is bad. I totally uh, agree. First. Uh, but then I'll get to answering your question, which is it's disengagement. When you see people disengage because of downtime, that's when you kind of know that it is you know, the negative downtime, that unwanted downtime where people are like, just let me get to my turn. I know exactly what I'm going to do, but I can't get there and do it because there's two other people that I'm waiting for. And that's bad downtime because that person who is waiting is just going to go on their phone. And then when it gets to their turn, they're going to forget what they had to do. And it's going to cause more time. Ah, It's just this vicious circle. So that's what I'd say would be uh, the downtime that most people who are talking about downtime see as the negative. It's when you have the opportunity to wander and disengage from the task at hand of playing the actual game. Kathleen? Well, my best friend is uh, not a gamer, although she has gone with me to Geekway Mini in St. Louis under the caveat that we only play party games because in party games, you get to do something on every single turn. And she does not like games where she has to wait to take her turn. And so that's what we did. We played party games the whole time. And, you know, I'm used to party games sort of like end of the night sort of thing. And, you know, we just had so much fun. And you, you kind of almost forget like, oh, wow, I'm always doing something. I'm always doing something. I'm always doing something, you know, because I've even told my students too, when you know, I'm teaching them how to be a good gamer and they're learning games and learning how to play games. And, you know, we talk about, you know, when it's not your turn, that you should still be engaged with the game. And I would tell them this story about how I was playing Ticket to Ride online uh, with a bunch of German players. And I just want to say for the record that my sister lives in Germany 
Germany and I love Germany, but I was being yelled at by these players. You should do your thinking on the other players' turns, basically, you know? And I think that's an important aspect too, is if there's not enough to engage you, as Sen was saying, and that your attention does wander, or even if it shouldn't, you're like, well, I'll just take a peek at my phone because certainly I know I'm guilty of this. I am. Um, but it's it lends itself to a bit of selfishness, you know, um, when it comes your turn again, I'm princess special and allow me to rediscover this world that you all were so kindly creating, you know, so it's interesting that sort of relationship that we have for a time in a game, because it also can be depending on your mood, how hungry you are, how tired you are, how alert you are, is this three in the morning, you know, all of those other factors can come into it too, as far as your tolerance for dealing with the time of a game. And the other thing I'll say as far as length of a game, since we haven't necessarily gotten there yet, but for me, game length tends to be about movie length. And that goes for RPGs as well as for tabletop board games. Like once we hit the two, two and a half long, you know, kind of point, it better be really, really good for me to hang in past that point. Jeff, anything to add about bad downtime? Um, oh, I'm sorry. I was looking at my phone. What were we doing? <laughs> well played. <laughs> you know, I downtime i think yeah i mean it times when you have players disengaged i think is is a problem from a design standpoint people are going to check out of the game but i think there's there's a lot of caveats with that i think first off it depends on the nature of the game i actually think in a party game or, or a party environment you can you can be a little less engaged you know because you're going to be chatting with people and talking to people and stuff like that um which which can you know if that's the interaction if that's the social nature you're looking for you don't need to be super engaged um I think also that there's, you know, at least coming from uh, a wargaming background and stuff like that, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, we used to play these games where, you know, one person's turn would take an hour. And, and it wasn't a problem in a way because you knew you could just totally check out. And I think that there's there's a problem sometimes with games if, if it's there's enough of a downtime that it, you notice it, but not long enough that you can totally check out and not have, you, you know, you still have to kind of pay half attention. I think it can be there's like a weird middle point in there. And I think you, eventually if it takes long enough, you know, Although I know Kathleen would obviously not like these games, but, you know, it reaches a point where you can just kind of check out and not worry about it until it's your turn. Um, and from a design perspective, I think it also matters, um, you know, they talk about do your thinking on your own turn. Well, some games are easier to do that in than others. And I think, you know, the, the more strategic games you can set up for players that there's things you can think about and things that you can do while you're taking your turn. But there's certainly there's plenty of games that the situation changes so radically over the course of the uh, of the turn that by the time it comes back to you, you know, you, you probably couldn't have thought that much about it anyway. But certainly as designers, I think it's important to be thinking about things that you can do to, to smooth over that and not just spring stuff on players right before their turn is supposed to go to try to limit that. Yeah, I see that in uh, Five Tribes is notorious for that. The board changes so drastically between turns that there's no way to plan ahead. Right. Even a simple game like Carcassonne, um, with tile-laying games, the if it's a shared tableau that you're building of tiles, by the time it gets to your turn on a four-player game, you've got... Uh, what one two three four five six seven eight nine on average nine new places you can place your tile right that weren't necessarily there right? and so it, it's it's a lot to expect somebody to stay engaged for that whole period of time if there's nothing the game is doing to keep you engaged uh, and so some of that is good game design it's like yeah we want you watching every turn uh, because if you don't, then you're going to suffer in the end game and the scoring and things like that. And then it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to win the game. And if you want to win the game, you should pay attention. Um, and so, I mean, that that's behavioral stuff when you're, you're talking about incentivization uh, through points in order to get somebody to behave the way you want them to. Um, but you can do that through good game design, I, I think, uh, by eliminating uh, points where downtime isn't thought of as good. And like Jeff said, there are definitely games where downtime is good, like you need it. So for example, um, Happy Salmon has no downtime and that's good because you don't need it. But in a game where it's like um, like Jab, if you've ever played Jab, which is a real-time boxing game by Gavin Brown of Roxley Games now, it was published by TMG a while ago. Um, and it's a boxing real-time game. And so you're fast and furious and the in-between rounds of fighting thing where you're like just moving stuff around to replace things and shuffling the deck, my brain actually needs that downtime to reconstitute and get ready for the next round uh, because it's so fast and furious if you play it with somebody else who knows what they're doing. Um, and so I think there's good downtime as well where you need to have that downtime to 
reconstitute yourself, to recompose yourself, or to just to analyze the situation because it's changed so much before it was your turn. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think, you know, the German people were being very kind to Kathleen by telling her to do her thinking on her turn, on other people's turns, because sometimes you just can't do that. Uh, Ticket to Ride is can be one of those games because if somebody builds where you wanted to build, there you go. Your whole turn is all that thinking is for nothing. Yep, or so. takes the card you wanted or whatever. I mean, there's tons of different ways that that can, that can come back yeah, to bite you. Yeah, or like my son, takes all the cards and keeps them forever <laughs> and never lets you build a thing. It's a valid strategy. Kathleen? It is. Uh, well, and <laughs> I, I think in the, the sweet German's defense, um, they, uh, I mean, I think in t- I think fast. And generally speaking, when I play games, um, I tend to really play fast and loose. Um, it made me laugh a little bit, actually, because I'm sort of known for playing more fast and loose. Sometimes I play a lot more as um, sort of like a game designer hat on where I'm like, let's try this weird strategy and see how the game responds. And that's why I usually lose games badly because I've got some like, I want to see what happens if I push this little point over and over again and see what happens here or whatever. So I don't know that I'm always the best sort of, you know, general sort of like game player to, you know, go by. But in, and, and then talking about with Sen too, it makes me think about uh, one time when I went to a theme park and, you know, needing that downtime. I went to a theme park once when it was like 100 degrees and so it wasn't very busy. And so we were able to ride ride after ride after ride. And I quickly realized that I'm not 23 years old anymore <laughs> and I need that downtime. And I was sick for like two hours because of just that sort of bombardment. Um, And I think that's a good point. You know, I mean, like, I don't want to... Speed is not the same thing as good gameplay. You know, speed is not a requirement towards a satisfactory experience. I mean, one of my friends is really into 18xx games and he's got a number of different designs and he had a couple of really good play tests a few weekends ago and I said, how did that work? He's like, it's great, but it's six hours. (laughs) And so we're trying to like hack it down a little bit, you know, maybe like four, you know? And my thing that I'm thinking of is what is happening in hours one through four that five through six are really worth hanging in for, you know? But if you are someone who loves, you know, that type of game and that type of build and you have the endurance for it you know that's four five six however many hours of absolute enjoyment so speed you know isn't necessarily an indicator of good gameplay because i certainly play fast loose and sloppy we're not even really sloppy but fast and loose and sort of experimental um because at least if i'm going to play ridiculously i don't necessarily want other people to have to wait too long for their turns while they wait for me to kind of muck about a bit you know one of the things that i think is interesting about this is I, I just wonder how much of an element of this is cultural or, or expectation based. You know, I mean, again, some of the most storied games uh, in, in, you know, in, in the gaming pantheon have tremendous downtime problems. Um, you know, one a point to right away would be Titan. Um, I love and, Titan. <laughs> okay. And then, you know, I mean, the thing about Titan is you move, you're moving stacks of monsters around a board, but when two stacks collide, um, those two people take their monsters and set up a whole separate little board and have a battle over those things while the other players watch. And maybe they're interested, but honestly, it doesn't really impact the other players all that much. Yeah, um, not until the end result is found out, right? Right. So, you know, and that game is a, you know, is, is a tremendous reputation. Axis and Allies does a similar kind of thing where you have to go through and fight the battle separately. I mean, the, there's, there's been a number of really, really popular games over the years that have just tremendous amounts of downtime for some of the other players. I, I think the expectations part of it, Jeff, I think the the current climate and culture that we live in, and that may also be some of it. Like, I don't think Titan would be popular today, even though there has been a reprint within the last decade. Um, you know, it did what it did, but it didn't go much further than that uh, for a game as storied as Titans. I remember when we used to play Titan, we used to go on ski trips and play Titan one game across like four or five nights because we just play a little bit understanding that none of us are going to finish this tonight. Uh, We're going to play a couple moves to Titan and then we'll play a couple moves tomorrow after we get done skiing Um, because it was that type of game Um, and and maybe maybe that's 
just the expectation that we had uh, because we'd all played it before. But now people are so much into, you know, speaking of time, cult of the new, cult of the new, cult of the new, get a new game, play it, pass, move on to the next one, that maybe the tolerance for a lot of those longer games isn't necessarily there. Yeah, because I think you're right when saying, you know, in terms of like our you know, the ways that we respond to the amount of time that we have, you know, I mean, even if we're going to go play games for four or five, six hours, you know, depending on how many games you're wanting to play, you know, sometimes people have one or two games they really want to do. Other times people want to play a lot of little games. And um, I think with us sort of going back to this sort of cultural piece, we're used to really fast gameplay as well like on our phones if you're playing for example um the app ganshon clever i have played hundreds of games of that and it takes you know on my phone it takes three four minutes and so then you know i can that's how you can rack up you know over five six maybe 700 plays even because you know it's fast but then playing that game with people and you've got the physicality of rolling the dice and people choosing their dice and moving things around and it's so much slower and so it's hard sometimes to even remember when you you know when you have so many app-based games and you're shifting back to a game played in real life in real time with other people you know that sort of like that human element and that enjoyment of being with other people whether you're socializing or even just you know sharing the gaming space we're used to things being so fast we're used to apps being fast you know everything has just gotten so much faster there's so many more demands on our time and so i think that's one of the reasons why people get really prickly about gameplay time that they think has gone unnecessarily long is because we all just feel so many different pulls on our time and how we spend it like you can almost feel guilty spending a lot of time on a game because you could be doing other games but this one's taking so long you know it, it there's a weird kind of cultural sort of like head play going on in some ways no i agree that there there's definitely uh, some things about it where you know i would love to go to a con and lock my phone in a box and just see if i'd enjoy it more <laughs> maybe i would but how are you gonna play all the app integrated games well i'm not <laughs> That's what I'm not going to do. All right. So one way to get past downtime is real-time games with simultaneous play. What are your thoughts on how this helps downtime? Is it worth it? I mean, you were talking before about needing a break in real-time games. So some either real-time games have to be incredibly short for the entire game, or I think you do need like breaks in between phases or rounds or something because your brain and sometimes your body just can't do it. Well, that's one thing that I think is so interesting about real-time games is they really do, you know, sort of take this idea of, you know, how much time a game should take and really narrow in on it as, you know, the, the actual mechanic that drives the game. So I have the game that I've played with my students a, time, a number of times, uh, uh, Escape, Curse of the Temple, and it's got a great soundtrack that goes with it that's ominous and things are crashing as you're racing around this temple trying to get out. Magic Maze is another one that, you know, has that sort of like time piece where you're all trying to work together to get that out and the thing that's really nice about those games too is that finite length to the game lets you know exactly how long once you've got it all set up lets you know exactly how long this game will take now obviously there could be like after game processing and talking and laughing or screaming or however you respond to it but i think that's one thing that for me is really really interesting whereas most games are kind of like open-ended as far as the amount of time goes no this is the opposite this game will take 10 minutes and if you go beyond 10 minutes you have lost and i'd love that as sort of a different way to really look at and express and play with how we use time and in games. Yeah, I think real time. Jeff, you have a, a real time game. I have three. You have three? Oh yeah, you do have three. Wow. Uh, so let's let's let Jeff answer these questions about real time <laughs> games for a while. Oh right, yeah, there are three. Yeah, well, Space Cadets is sort of semi real time, but yeah, um, yeah. So Space Cadets has a bunch of real time elements to it, and Dice Duel 
is pretty much all real time. Um, and then pit crew um, is the same thing. But yeah, I mean, we kind of backed into that whole idea of, of um, pausing that you were talking about. Sen. I mean, I think that, you know, I think there's a reason that escape is like 10 minutes long or whatever it is. I mean, I think that, that you need, you, you can't maintain that level of intensity for, for that long a period of time. Um, so, but with Dice Duel, uh, the first iteration of it was actually um, when you're shooting at somebody, you, uh, you, you shout that you're launching you're firing your torpedo and um and at that point the game freezes and you just stop and you resolve because there's a couple of steps you have to go through and just you know you got to compare your torpedo with the shields and you know see if it hits and what it does um and when we first presented it to um that was the design. And when we first presented it to Stronghold, uh, they came back and said, you know, we really like this, but we'd love it to be completely real time. We don't like that it stops at these points. And so we went back and we worked out and we tried to come up with a way to kind of integrate the torpedo firing just into the regular flow and that you would just continue playing as fast as you could and doing all this other stuff. And we kind of got it mechanically to work, but we really found that you needed that pause. You needed to be, you know, to kind of collect yourself or else people just wore down too fast. Um, and so we ended up just, you know, going back and putting it back in. And that's, that's the way the game is now. It's got these, they're not built in at a certain interval of time, they're relying on the players, you know, kind of moving into firing position and then launching a torpedo, but they happen frequently enough um, that, you know, it, it just, it acts as those natural collection points. And when I teach the game, the first time somebody does it, I'm like, um, I just say, okay, everybody, let's catch our breath. Let's, you know, let's, let's recenter. You know, it's like before the next thing in the mind, you know, where you got to put your hands in the middle of the table and resynchronize, you know? So I think that that's important. Um, and, you know, real time has its own design considerations. Um, although I've kind of changed on this a little bit, but like when we were doing um, uh, Dice Duel, um, we spent a ridiculous amount of time on trying to make sure that people couldn't cheat or, or cheating would be as, you know, was, you, you could you could spot people trying to move dice around. You know, basically when you put a die down, it's down. That's it. You can't pick it up again unless something else happens. And um, everything happens out in the open and all this other stuff. We spent all this time and um, I, don't, I wouldn't say we compromised the design, but it was certainly an important factor of what we were doing when we were a part of our design document and philosophy. And, uh, you know, then... Years later, you know, Captain Sonar comes out real time and everything's hidden behind screens. And, you know, you can you can cheat quite a bit at that game if you really want to. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you're just making mistakes the first time you play and and nobody I have ever heard anybody comment. It was the first thing I thought of when I looked at it. I was like, boy, people could really cheat on this just because my brain was tuned to that. I guess I'm looking for ways to cheat, I guess, is the moral of the story. But um, but I've never heard anybody complain about that. So, um, you know, if that's really the case and, you know, if people are willing to enter into that social covenant that they're not going to worry about that, I think that that opens up a lot more design space for the designer to be kind of clever and creative and not worry about it that much. Um, that people are just in it to have a good time. Yeah, I mean, the magic circle of firing torpedoes at each other, right? Sure. The, uh, I was going to actually mention Captain Sonar. You're like reading my mind, Jeff. The uh, interesting thing I find in Captain Sonar is that sometimes I've seen people surface just to take a break, like to literally just say, I don't know where anybody is. I don't know where anything, when anything's <laughs> happening, I'm surfacing. <laughs> We're surfacing now just to kind of clear the slate. And I think we did something wrong. Let's just start over, surf. Right. And so I think games that give real time games that give you that out um, to take that break to say, okay, we're going to reclaim the decks and shuffle them up and start all over again. I think those are probably my favorite of the real time games. Um, There's this one that uh, I was playing with, not Z, who was I playing with? Um, Anyways, one of the Dice Tower people. Um, And it was. The, the multiple sand timer game, a multiple sand timer game where your your units had this cooldown time that was based war, war time, maybe uh, that was based on your sand timers being turned over and they couldn't respawn until they were all done and all this kind of stuff, and it was really hectic to the point where like you know if you made a mistake nobody's gonna notice if you cheated nobody was gonna notice, but you still tried really hard not to because you're bound in this idea of I want to see if I can win by playing by the rules so you know I, I think. There, there's something about gamers that maybe it isn't about the win it's about winning within the confines of those rules uh, but going back to 
real time. And I think taking just a step down from that is like the site, a lot of simultaneous action play where you see games like even um, Seven Wonders isn't really totally simultaneous, but the simultaneous draft at least can help reduce that game time, that downtime that people think they think they have but you have enough time to think about what game do what card do i want what might the person before me have taken and what am i giving to the next person so there's a little bit of that um fake real time i guess in a lot of those games where it is simultaneous action whether it's simultaneous draft or simultaneous reveal or programming games and then we reveal so i i think there's those nice happy mediums as well where you're not and if you if you disengage from say a programming game where you're done programming but somebody else isn't that's not a big deal because nothing's changed on the table right so i think some of the games have more of a uh, give you a little more tolerance for that kind of stuff a little more leeway let me just throw out a, a, a comment that I, I, i'm just curious for your guys reaction to this because sure. i was playtesting um a new game i've got coming out well i guess it's this year now i'm used to saying next year now it's this year um uh versailles 1919 uh and it's, we were playing a three player game and turns can go very quickly. Um, if you just decide to like recover your stuff, you just bring it back. And there was one guy like he made his move and then like five seconds later, it was his turn again. Um, and he kind of freaked out a little bit. He was like, oh, it's, that was too quick. I'm not ready, you know? And it kind of threw him off because it came back. And I, I was just thinking, is it possible to have too little downtime between your turn? I know we always do that, but. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think balance is important. Like if you have some game turns that are really long and some that are really short, that could really throw people off if they're expecting more time than they have. But if it's all short and you're, if that's what the game wants to feel like, then it makes sense. I mean, it also, I guess it also depends on whether there's a timer or not. Like, if there's some physical thing that's telling you your time's up, and it's not just convention of players and the table saying you've got to do your thing now, uh, it feels different when you feel rushed by other people than when you feel rushed by a inanimate object, like a sand timer. Well, you know, thinking about um, Captain Sonar... You know, and I've played that and other games too. One of the, I think one of the stressful aspects though for players, you know, going back to the idea of cheating, it's not sometimes that people cheat as much as if you're all doing something simultaneously and you get a rule wrong and you're playing it incorrectly and then you maybe realize that you're playing it incorrectly or maybe you don't even at the end, it will either way you feel bad. You feel bad that you got the rule wrong. You feel bad that, I mean, I, well, the first time I played Captain Sonar, I didn't totally understand what I was doing. It was late. I was tired. It was after, you know, a long day and I probably did not drink. <laughs> and so, you know, so playing it, I was just like mystified as far as what I was doing, what I was supposed to be doing. And, and so then at the end, like my team did not win and I know part of it was me. And it's one of those things where the real time aspect, you know, is like this tight vice around you and it doesn't really let you you know, have the, even the feedback from others that you would maybe want to have on your turn when you were just learning a game. Um, and I think especially in a lot of other real-time games when people, you know, cheating might just be, you know, mistakes and repeated mistakes. And then when you realize, oh, well, we didn't actually win asterisk, it's because I did this, that, or the other. I mean, that can be a really frustrating experience. Now, if it's a 10-minute game, that's okay. People can respond and come back. But if it's not, then that could give people a very different kind of overall takeaway. Plus two, you know, if you're someone who's a slow processor or, and you do like to think and be, you know, more methodical about your turns, you know, having either real time or like what Jeff was talking about, where the turns were going so quickly that someone didn't feel like they had enough time to really process what they were doing. You know, it, downtime isn't, you know, you could look at it as sort of like negative space, just as worthwhile of the art piece as, you know, the, the periods that you're, you know, you're active. And I think finding that right balance between the two is, I think, for me, 
like in the, in the games that I've been working on is trying to get that balance right is as important as so many other different sort of mechanical aspects when it comes to a game. And one game that I'm working on, there were two big parts to each turn. And in a game that was supposed to be sort of fun and fast, I don't know that I really loved how I kept trying to solve one half. And finally, I just took it out and just made it a very, you know, one, one, there was no decision anymore. It just became something that was sort of like an automatic. And then there was choice on the second half of the turn. And it made the game go so much better where there was that better balance within a player turn of not having to make one type of decision, which lent, le left you sort of that like natural sort of like turn time and mental space to focus on the part of the game that was the most fun part anyway. So I think how you res respond to time as far as like what Jeff was saying too, you know, for um, needing the downtime to, um, you know, having games go too fast. I think that's so critical. I mean, even the game length, you know, you want the game to end where people are still engaged and the game builds to a pitch and everyone else is like, oh man, I only needed one or two more turns. Like that's where you want the game to end. And that's as much determined by time as it is resources and points. Interesting. So let's move on to upkeep. So with upkeep, is there's things you have to do for a game to run. They're not computer games. The people have to do the stuff unless you're using an app. And even then, you still have to move things around. So some games do this better than others, but there's this aspect of you kind of have to stop playing and do a bunch of things to track points or reset up things or shuffle cards, whatever. And this takes time out of the game and can really break engagement if it takes too long or is too complex. So what are some ways that you've worked worked on games to minimize upkeep or to get the upkeep to be part of the play? Well, that's what I was going to say is that usually we try to make the upkeep part of the actual play. Um, and I have a, a very big aversion to tracking information uh, that doesn't need to be tracked or that isn't fun to track so right now i'm working on a tower defense game we're doing the app conversion for kingdom rush for lucky duck and if you ever played a, uh, a kingdom rush game or any tower defense game really it's like what's my dps how much damage am i doing you know per second with these types of arrows versus this type of arrow or whatever to the mobs that are running across the screen and that's all well and good when you have a computer doing it, but when you have humans doing it, if you were tracking hit points and you wanted the granularity of having multiple levels of damage, you would spend the entire game putting little damage tokens on tiles. And I ain't got no time for that, and nobody else does either, right? So we have changed a lot of how that works. So instead of killing units by hit points and things like that, which is a very standard way of doing things, we're using polyonimo, poly onimo, ominos, polyominoes. Uh, can't to, use them if you can't say it. I'm sorry. I know, You're going to have to take sorry. them out of the game now. Right? Uh, to cover up uh, grids of monsters um, to say when the towers shoot, they shoot specific shaped uh, polyominoes. And when you cover the monsters up, then they die. And so we've just changed uh, how we wanted to play. Instead of tracking damage in one way, we're tracking it in a more fun yet puzzly way. Instead of just, that's a single point, take off a hit point. That's a single point, take off a hit point. And so we still have variance and granularity within the different tower types based on how far they can shoot, how big the polyonimo they create is, and all sorts of other stuff. But yeah, we've just taken out that procedural tracking, which I find really, really boring. Like, really boring, to the point where I disengage from games when that happens. Yeah, Jeff, like you were saying in the graphic design episode, Eclipse does this really well with a lot of things, because when you do one action, you're also updating a track with that same action. You don't have to do a separate tracking mechanism. Right, right. It just comes along for free. Yeah, I think it's a really brilliant little thing. And like I said, you know, most of every single 4X game pretty much before that, there was always this step where you have to go through and calculate your income and add everything back up. And, um, uh, you know, it was just... Uh, it, you know, it just really ground everything to a halt uh, while you went through and figured out your economy and all this other stuff. So yeah, that's yeah, not just even, that's not even fun downtime, right? That's, that's right. just, oh. That's accounting. 
Yep. Right, accounting the game. Um, a game like Istanbul, the dice game, does the same thing, where um, as you pick off the gem that you just bought, the next cost gets revealed, right? So just saving those time that, you know, you don't have to do it. You're you're actually offloading the time that you're spending within the game by during the setup, you set it up so that everything's covered. And as you uncover it, then the new costs get revealed, right? So um, that can go towards a setup versus, you know, game time things. So the game just runs much faster because of things like that. Uh, another thing in um, in Scythe, the player boards, they have the top action and the lower action, and all the lower actions are non-interactive. So you can do your top action, which interacts with the board and other players, and then the next person can start their turn while you do your bottom action. So the bottom action is more of an upkeep thing, but it can happen while someone else is going. So you can... It's not getting rid of it but it's kind of hiding it within the game so you don't have to take as much downtime at least sure and all the obvious stuff like just drawing cards at the end of your turn instead of the start of your turn and stuff like that you know give give the players the tools to to to, to be more efficient which is so hard to get used to if you came from playing magic yeah <laughs> true uh yeah and there's a lot of other little little tricks like that that you can use uh, so that you're doing a lot of your thinking and your calculating during your off turn uh, right, Kathleen? Just like the Germans would like you to do. <laughs> They're very polite when they yell at you. It's it's lovely. Yes. I love Germany. I love Germans. Continue, Sen. No, no, no. You can, you can talk about you can talk about uh, your poor use of time during your off turn. Oh, I mean, to be fair, yes, I'm probably guilty of every good and bad behavior, really. Well, one thing I was going to say is uh, my favorite game series is the Empire Builder series of train games. And, uh, you know, and they're definitely games where there's a lot of downtime between player turns. And that's one of the reasons why I like them, because I tend to play with my boyfriend, with good friends. And so I know that when we play these games, that's you know, two and a half, you know, who knows, of time where I get to spend that with my friends, you know, hanging out at a table, you know, and we are doing this thing, we are playing a game, but it's, uh, the downtime is as much for socialization, which I do enjoy. But one of the things is, um, especially for purists of this game series, you know, on the, the turns of a very specific order. And what happens is when you make a delivery during a turn, you get a new order card and that might completely change your plan. And so during your turn, you know, you've got to look at what you've got, what you, how much money you have, where you are, where you want to go. And you have, you get your whole plan might change. So that could be a good amount of time spent on your turn. Well, I'm, and so what I found out from uh, my friends who worked um, for Mayfair is when they were doing the um, Iron Dragon reissue is that they were looking at doing a second set of rules that would invert the two main phases of your turn. There's in the regular game, you move then build. And then when there was a second set of rules that they were working on where you would build then move. And so what that meant was when you finished moving, your turn was done. So anything you wanted to do in terms of that building, that planning would happen on the other player's turns. It would happen you know, in that sort of downtime. And it makes the game go a lot faster. Their game Empire Builder Express uses, inverts that system. And it's kind of funny, though, because the people who play the game tend to be, you know, sort of purists about it. Um, I mean, it's not a real common line of train games. And now that Mayfair um, is no longer, I don't know what will happen as far as Asmodee, you know, who knows. But um, so purists really didn't like that change of rule set, even though it made the game faster you know there were certain small little things maybe not small to some of those players but it was really interesting sort of seeing the reaction to that sort of change because it's almost like changing fundamentally what the game was about even though it wasn't really but people had a really strong reaction and it was just designed to make the game play faster yeah that's interesting we uh, we did um, a new set of rules for Belfort for the uh, anniversary edition which was uh, the less red tape <laughs> Um, set of rules. And what we were trying to do there is address the issue that several people have had about, you know, when you allow people to do whatever they want on their turn, which is what the original rules of Belfort did, um, people could take some very long turns because they could do lots of stuff. And the way that we've rewritten the rules, um, we lose some things. We lose actually my favorite part of the game, which is sad, but 
it does actually reduce the amount of downtime. Now, uh, my statement would be that I don't necessarily think it makes it a better game to have less downtime. So that's that's you know six of one half dozen of the others. But it was a request for us to do this, so we thought let's try this and it works. Uh, but we lose the the best part of the game, which in my opinion is jockeying for position because turn order can change within uh, the within the actual game turn. So. Yeah, we lost that. But it, uh, I think, I, I honestly think sometimes downtime is an illusion that uh, people are just not comfortable with having that. And they're anxious. They want to to do their turn and they're going to disengage, right, because they are getting bored or because they're really anxious. Um, and if you look at, you know, Mihaela Csikszentmihalyi's flow theory uh, of, dis- of engagement and disengagement, um, you know, people, that's when people disengage is when they are too bored or when they are very, very anxious and not in control of the situation, which sounds like what was happening or could have possibly happened to the fellow that you played with, Jeff, who said, I only had five seconds. I, uh, this is not what I expected, right? Versus the person who's playing Titan with you and say, you just took 17 minutes to finish your little side battle. I'm out of here. So it's all different sorts of reasons why we disengage, but those are two of the main ones. So let's move on to control of game time, sure. which besides a specifically timed game, which we talked about, they you don't have total control over how long your game's going to take to play. The players that are involved, the situation they're in, factors in immensely. But I believe there are certain things you can do. Um, you can help start up players' um, strategies by giving them alternate player powers that lean towards a certain strategy so they don't have to think about the 11 possibilities on turn one. They can think of two. And also, a lot of games, as you go through them, the option space just balloons up, sometimes to a ridiculous degree, and you can really drag down the game. So if you have some way to remove options as you move along to keep the decision space rather even, you can really help it along. Uh, Kathleen, anything? Yeah, um, I um, got to play Wingspan a couple times uh, this past weekend with uh, one of the preview copies. And one of the things that I really like about the game is the first round you start out with eight actions. And then at the end of the round, one of those cubes you use to put on this little scoring board to show, you know, with the goal for that round. Well, that means we, we start out with eight. So that means in the second round you have seven cubes and then you go down to six cubes, then you go down to five cubes. And so what's really nice is it's an engine builder game. I might have the numbers wrong off the top of my head, but the the idea is the same. And so anyway, so you build up these little engines where you stack these cards. So when you activate a certain action by playing that cube, all of those sub actions will fire. So what's really nice about it is as you have a limited number of actions you can take, all the different things you can do in your turn. And generally speaking, those are things that go really fast. Those are things that might affect other players. But by reducing the number of overall actions kind of shifts the balance of where the time is spent from early, fast, a lot of actions to slower turns later on in the game, but you do less of them. And it does add itself into like, you know, more strategic choices and all that other stuff. But I really like that sort of, you know, teeter-taller, you know, sort of, you know, shifting of the balance of the game between that. And I think Wingspan does that incredibly well. One of the things that, um, you know, I mean, a couple of things that you, that, you were saying in the introduction to this section, Chris, I think really resonate. Um, uh, you know, certainly you can look at uh, one of the recent terraforming Mars expansions. Um, I think it's the colon colonies one, I think, I mean, specifically aims to jumpstart that initial early phase of the game and, and get things moving faster and, and get people into it. So that's, that's the, really the, one of the big purposes of that expansion. One of the exercises that I do with my class and, and one of the things that I see all the time with people sit down with me and show me like really early stage prototypes and stuff like that is um, that it just becomes apparent that they have not put much thought into the overall duration of the game that they want. Uh, one of the first things that I do, and I really do this with a, with a, with a piece of paper and a pencil, and I sit down and I go through it, is, you know, based on the kind of the things that I think players are going to be doing, how much time do I think each turn is going to take, right? And then how long, you know, how many, how long do I want the total game to take? And that tells me like how many rounds I think it's going to be um, with different player counts. And, um, you know, there's a little fudging in that. And, you know, sometimes I'll 
say I want it to be this number of rounds and so I know that this is the maximum amount of time a player turn can take to fit into that but I've been with some you know I've played some early stages with people and you know, we've been playing it and I'm like well how long do you want this do you want this game to be and they say one number and and it's just way too short for what they've designed into this thing. You know, the number of cards that they have in the deck or the condition that's needed to actually terminate the game or whatever it is. Um, so I, I think that that first step of putting together a time budget, um, especially for a beginning designer, is a really valuable thing because it's it, it gives you much more perspective on what it is. And if you play a game and you actually time how long player returns take, you're also going to realize that things you take, you think are going to take like 10 seconds. You know, everything is, all the actions are going to take longer than you think that they are. And so in those early stage designs to, to really think about that and, and factor that into the way you want to structure the whole game, I think you have to plan that in from the very start. That's uh, otherwise you, you may find yourself having to change a huge amount of stuff to, to get it to the time duration that you want to get it to. Is that on your checklist, Jeff? Um, I think it is. I'll have to double check though. That's a good question. Cool. <laughs> Uh, one thing we look at when we're designing is, did we all do the same thing on the first turn? And if so, can we just cut out the first turn and give everybody that thing? Mm-hmm. Right? So a lot of times you'll find in games, the first thing everybody does is X, Y, or Z. It might be, you know, get a resource or draw a card or whatever. So in that case, why don't we just start that way? Uh, because the game is going to, tr- you know, speed up by one turn. And you're going to be learning the game faster because you'll be interacting with the pieces faster, all those types of things. So, you know, why start at the beginning when you can start a little bit in the middle uh, is one of the sort of adages that we, we follow when we're designing. Another thing that we think about a lot when we design games and we play other people's games is the welcome time on the table, I guess is what I'd like to call it. It's like, Um, I often tell people, you know, that's a good game. It's just I would rather play it twice in 40 minutes than once in 30 minutes or something like that. Like It just took too long to get to the resolution point. Or after I thought it resolved, we kept playing for another couple turns. Why is that? Um, And there are definitely times where I'd rather play a game and I'd be happier playing it twice or three times for longer, a total span of time than playing it once for even you know two thirds of that span, same span of time, because it didn't engage me for the arc of the story, the arc of the game. Um, sometimes a lot of people will have that arc run way too long, uh, and they'll run it like a book where there is like a denouement uh, or a falling action after the the big you know major conflict, but. Games don't really support that so well. Not not a board game anyways, or a card game for sure. It won't support that narrative structure as well as, say, a role-playing game where you want to find out what happened to everybody. Um, but in a game where there is a winner, that's really all that matters. Did I win? If so, then why are we playing past that? Yeah, for my game that I have with Colossal, it's a dexterity game and it, you know, does take a bit of time for setup and time has been a really important consideration when we've made all, all of our different choices and the game is scenario based. <laughs> so it's a fantasy scenario based dexterity game, which is bonkers and I love it so much. Um, but you know, there's the amount of time that it takes to set up and then how long does each scenario take? And so one of the things that we've done is like looking at it from game flow when players set up the game and they play the first module you wanted to play you know long enough where they get into it but short enough where the game comes to an end and then the next scenario requires only a few sort of changes because the board has some modular components a few sort of changes so that when people play it and it's and it's all set up it's like well you only need to do a few more little things And then you've got this totally different way that you can play it. And so that's been one of the big considerations when it comes to the amount of time to set up versus the amount of time for actual play. And the other thing about gameplay, and I thought this was really funny, I was asking some friends for recommendations for games for my students because they're just learning about games. They're seventh graders. Many of them have never played any hobby games. And in the beginning, I want them just to love games and see what can be done. And so I have them play short, fun, fast games where they can open the box, read the rules, set them up, play the game and be done with it. And so we play Get Bit and Hey, That's My Fish and you know a number of other different short, fun, fast games. 
And someone suggested Ticket to Ride New York City, which I had seen, I've seen, of course, but it hadn't played. And I was like, you know, that sounds really, you know, it sounds great. Because the one thing that he said was, he said, it's his favorite type of fast game where you jump into the phone booth, you have the knife fight, and then you jump out. Like, it's just a fun, you just get right to it and you get out. And I was like, that's really great. So I bought it and I had kids playing it without me even trying. And I, of course, played Ticket to Ride as we just talked about. Um, and it's great, you know, for the amount of time that I have with my students because you know I have to have them play games they can finish because when kids can't finish a game they lose that whole other component and Sen especially well both of you but both Sen and Jeff know when you're teaching you know the clock is one of the biggest enemies that you have and so for my students to be able to open a box play a game finish it in that time is and it's fun and it's got clever you know mechanics but it's easy for them to learn and understand from the rules you know, it's hard to find games that really fit that niche, especially ones that kids will get really into and love. So time is a huge aspect when it comes to both design for me, as well as what I can even use for like instructional gaming tools. I just talk faster. But on the flip side, I mean, one of the things that I think is really, well, it's not as bad as it was a couple of years ago, but like three, two or three years ago, it seemed like every single game I played just ended too fast. You know, just when I thought things were finally getting going, you know, it just be boom, it was over. Um, and I'm sure that that was a conscious design choice. And the idea was better off ending it too early than having it drag on. But um, I, I just found there was a whole rash of games that just, you know, left me very unsatisfied uh, that I wasn't able to play with the toys that the game was giving me. Especially with engine building games, you never get that one chance to run your engine. Yep. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely been um, not a... <sighs> I think there's a again a culture shift in the gaming environment um, where you know short games and fast games are, are the thing. Um, where if you see a game that's over an hour, uh, people are going to say, "Well, it better be worth it." You know, money wise, setup time wise, rules reading wise all those little economies that you have to consider as a game designer have to be worth it to the player. The player's not going to play it a second time or recommend it to friends or talk about it on social media. Um, so there is sort of that, you know, play into the audience that you're selling to in terms of trying to design games that are streamlined, elegant, shorter, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then you get a lot of people who are saying, you know, no, I, I want a bigger, meatier game, but it still has to be easy to learn. It still has to be something that we jump right into. It still has to be that kind of thing. And really, I do think that for a lot of the long games, the people who play the long games know the rules ahead of time, right? It's, it's, I think it's the rules that really stop people from jumping into a lot of the longer games if they haven't played them before. So uh, that, that might go towards a lot of the other stuff that we're talking about in elegance, um, in teaching and learning and rules writing and that kind of thing where you can just pick it up and play. And if you can engage with it for two hours, that's great, or three hours, that's great. Uh, but if I have to learn for an hour before I even start playing and it's a three-hour game, yeah, maybe I'll go play something else. So, I, I mean, I understand the mentality. Um, and I do see that shift that Jeff has talked about. Uh, I, I don't know if we're shifting back, but maybe we are. Because I think that the... We, we see these kind of waves in buyers. And if you spend any time on Facebook forums where people are buying games, you'll see that they start, they all start with, you know, what are the best new games to get? And it's always the same, you know, Pandemic, Ticket to Ride, Catan, blah, 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 blah. And then they throw those games out because, oh, no, I'm elite now. And now I can play all these other games that are much more time consuming and whatnot. And so we see these ebbs and flows in the cultural dynamics. It'd be great to be uh, some sociologist should actually study that and, and see about how the you know the uh, cohorts go across time in terms of their game expertise and what that means to designers uh, because we're just seeing more and more people uh, getting into gaming and so those are the people who are buying games and so that's why I think we get we tend as designers to get pushed towards designing games like that by publisher demands or requests when there are still other gamers because there's still more on the other side. There are more old gamers than there are ever new gamers. And so hopefully they're 
tastes may change. I'm not going to say mature or improve because it's not saying that that's bad, but maybe there are games gamers who want longer games out there um, that aren't just, you know, the old Grognard war gamer types. Well, you know, it's funny because when you're saying, we're talking about, you know, engine building games, that was one of my uh, sort of frustrations, I think, with um, Above and Below was, you know, that game, the multiple times I played it, just when you, like, got your engine going and, you know, you, like, run it once, like, boom, the game would be over. And, you know, the first time I thought, okay, well, that's just me. And I was slow. And then that was sort of how the game sort of played out. And so we um, even played it where we went beyond um, the number of rounds, just even if it, you know, broke and balanced the game, just because it, so you can have the pleasure of running that engine that you built. And I think that's, you know, kind of lends itself back to what Jeff was saying about games that play them, play it just a little bit too fast, you know, for what they are. And I think it's, you know, it's, you know, it, you know, when you go to a bookstore and there's so many different sections of books and you know exactly where you can go and in game stores, there are games and, you know, there's some sort of groupings, but generally speaking, you can have, you know, junk art on the shelf, not too far away from Orleans or whatever. And, you know, but they're all just games on the shelves. And so in the end, it just comes down to, you know, if people find themselves in the wrong game and they, you know, fuss and they don't like it and that's fine and that's fair. Um, but yeah, trying to figure out like what that right spot is, it just has to be the right spot for the right game, but that's so hard to know it and to see it while you're, you know, kind of doing it and playing it. Well, we are out of time, so let's just have one last chance for everyone to talk about elegant game design in general. If there's anything else you want to add, this is the last episode in the series, so this is pretty much the last word on elegant design until I do this again. Let's start with Jeff. As always, I mean, the key that I focus on is is watching the players during the playtest. Um, and I, I always get much more value from watching the players than talking to them after the playtest. I think playtesting is incredibly valuable, but I mean, watching the way they interact with the components, watching where players get stuck, watching when people start to drift off and when they laugh and those kind of things. I think that's critical for making the games um, elegant for the players, easy for the players to interact with. And, and that's, you know, I'm always looking for those stumbling blocks that get in the way of the players having the experience that you want them to have. Kathleen? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I think I've been all over the place today, both in terms of talking about playing fast and loose, but also then wanting the the ability to take as much time on a turn that I've wanted to or needed to in order to make it happen. Um, but honestly, I think I, I agree with Jeff, you know, when it comes to, you know, design for a game and how long it should be and how long player turns should be, all of that comes from the players and their actual experience. Um, because if you don't, what you want for the game, and versus what you deliver um, might mean that you have to cut things and you know re- eliminate things but you know at some point you just it's not about you it's about the players and especially when you're talking about time it's such a nebulous sort of thing um, but you only can get there with lots and lots of play testing and paying attention so but you have to do what you think is best and um, and what works for you and design the games you love and you know and hopefully others will agree and sin yeah it is pretty nebulous it's kind of wibbly wobbly right so when we look at time as an element uh in game design i i think even just one of the standard things to do in game design from my perspective is when you find that key that core piece of the game that engages people the most then you start cutting away everything that doesn't make that happen more often or doesn't support that happening or gets in the way of that and that will help you reduce time reduce downtime if that's what you want to do or create the right amount of time i think there's a a good amount of time um, and just help you make that game more elegant by not adding more stuff but by taking away things that get in the way of the thing that most people find super engaging about the game and if you can do that um, with a little bit of what's the word lack of preciousness about your game I think you're going to have a better game in the end a little more elegant game in the end if you can look at a game analyze it say this is the most elegant part of the game this is the most engaging part of the game everything else needs to support that 
to happen better, more, faster, more fun, whatever it is. Anything that isn't doing that, I think we should get rid of, or I think we should sideboard for a little while. Uh, and then just try it, you know, because the game isn't written in stone until it gets published, and even then. Uh, so you could take parts out and add parts back in, and it's okay to do that. So give yourself the permission to spend some time and uh, fiddle around with your game to make sure that you are really presenting the most engaging game you can. And I'll just end it with saying, I think Elegance is a player always knowing how to do what they want to do and being able to do it when they want to do it. And that's really hard to get to, but something to work towards. Thank you all for coming on the show. And let's end this with some contact info. Let's start from the bottom of the list again with Sen. Oh, hi. I thought I was at the top of the list. I've apparently been relegated to the bottom. Uh, my name is Sen. You can find me on Twitter at Senfong Lim, S-E-N-F-O-O-N-G-L-I-M. Uh, and on the interwebs, you can check out my webcast at Facebook, uh, which is Meeple Syrup Show. Uh, we do a weekly video cast on Facebook Live. And Kathleen. Yeah, so my name is Kathleen Mercury. You can find all of my game design teaching resources at my website, KathleenMercury.com. I also am on Twitter at Mercury with seven M's. You can find me on Board Game Geek as Funk Donut, one word. And you can find me on the Inverse Genius Fine Family of Products podcasts. I'm on uh, on board games. I tend to be, I do uh, games in schools and libraries. I'm a contributor to a number of other podcasts. And I'm always happy to talk with others about teaching game design and um, and how we can get better games in front of kids and how we can have kids make games because that's who uh, our audience will be in the future. And Jeff? So you can listen to me on the Ludology podcast, um, and I'm also on the Dice Tower doing the Game Tech segment. Uh, and I'm probably most active on Twitter, where you can uh, find me at, at G Engelstein, G-E-N-G-E-L-S-T-E-I-N. Well, thank you all for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks. This was so much fun. Thanks for having us. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. Check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Vegan Al, Brad Batchelor, and Roscoe Shop. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at TheBGWorkshop and on Facebook at TheBoardGameWorkshop. And join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.